This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins. I've got a special guest with me right now, my son, Jackson. Jackson, you want to say hi? Hi. Hi, and what episode are we doing today? 29. And what's the title of the episode? A Reason for Miracles? Almost. You almost got it. The Reason for Miracles. It's going to be A Reason for Miracles and The Reason for Miracles, but Jackson's out of school today. And so I told him he could sit in. Are you going to sit in for the whole episode, or do you have much to say about miracles? I don't know. You don't know? You haven't really given it a whole lot of thought, have you? All right, well, get you. <laughs> he's getting him a drink, and uh, you're going to go sit back and listen? Mm-hmm. I think he's just going to listen, but he did a great job introducing everything. Uh, I am going to talk about the reason for miracles today. And I'm doing that for a reason, for a couple of reasons. I want to talk about miracles, a very important subject. But also, I am kind of doing some self-promotion here. I have a new book that's out called Christian Faith. This is a sequel to my book, Christian Hope. And uh, I've been working through these. You can probably guess I plan eventually to do one on Christian love and uh, this book on Christian faith is now available on Amazon. You can get it in paperback format or ebook format. And uh, there is a chapter in it on miracles. In fact, these books that I'm doing on uh, faith, hope, and love serve a number of purposes. They're good class books. At least I hope they will be good class books. They're good for just reading if you want to read. And they also serve as a handbook on several important topics. Uh, This one on Christian faith has a chapter on miracles. It has a chapter on the inspiration of the Bible. It has a chapter on the Holy Spirit. A lot of people will be interested in that. I may do an episode on that also. And this chapter on miracles. And it can help you if you're studying with somebody or you just want some answers on that particular question. You can turn over to those specific chapters. You don't have to read the whole book. And you can, you know, get get some knowledge on that particular area and hopefully study and answer a few questions. May not answer all of your questions, but a lot of them anyway. That's the plan. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, check out my book, Christian Faith by Drew Kaiser. It's on Amazon.com. You can pick it up today. Uh, let's get into the miracles. Here's This is a timely subject. People more now than ever believe in modern-day miracles. And, of course, as a Christian, you must believe in miracles. But the question I think that people don't weigh enough is, are miracles happening today? Currently in this stage of the Christian era, are miracles a part of God's plan? And a lot of churches will tell you, yes, a lot of prominent theologians and preachers uh, folks on TV and leaders of huge megachurches will tell you, yes, without question, miracles are happening today. And that answer depends on a lot of, a lot of things. Uh, it depends on how you interpret experiences. It depends on how you interpret words. And I'm not here to question people's experiences. I know that sounds like what I'm doing. I'm just going to try to set out what the Bible says, but I realize that there are a lot of people out there who will tell you they personally experienced a miracle, and they're very sincere about that. 
and I'm not here to judge them or call them a liar. I spoke with a woman one time who was talking about a miracle that she believed she had been the recipient of. She had suffered from stomach cancer, and uh, she told me that she had gone to a faith healing meeting and had been healed of stomach cancer. Uh, And I said, well, did you recover? Have you made a full recovery? Did you go back to the doctor and get confirmation? And she said, well, here's what happened. After I was healed, I sinned, and because I sinned, God gave the cancer back to me. So currently, I'm going through chemotherapy or whatever. Well, of course, there are that's an extreme example. I'm not trying to saying that represents everybody's miraculous experience, but it'll show you she I could not convince her of even considering the point that maybe she had not been healed, but maybe she had cancer through that whole experience. Uh, she insisted throughout that she had been healed, that she felt something, and that later, because of sin, it came back upon her. Uh, I can't convince her otherwise. And I can't put myself in everybody's shoes. All I can do is go to the Word of God and look at miracles and the reason for miracles and make a judgment based on that. So this is one of the chapters in Christian faith, and I'm going to summarize it, go through it. I probably won't hit every detail, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit and hope to answer some questions. And maybe there's some questions that I won't cover that you'd like to hear on, a, on another podcast. I'm always open to that. So tweet me, uh, at Drew Kaiser. Go to the Wide Margins Podcast website, widemarginspodcast.com. Look me up and um, ask a question, and we'll get back to you and try to answer that question to the best of our ability. I think the best place to start before we start talking about the reason for miracles is getting a good definition of a miracle. And this will clear up a lot of confusion about what I'm talking about today and help you see where I'm coming from just in getting a definition of miracle. A lot of people say anything amazing is a miracle, and I understand that. I know that's how the word is being used a lot. The best example I can think of is people talk about the miracle of childbirth, but that isn't the way the Bible uses the term miracle. The Bible uses it in terms of supernatural events that cannot occur naturally. The best definition I've found of this is by R.C. Sproul. He says, A miracle is an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world, which is an act against nature that only God can do, such as bring life out of death or something out of nothing. So, childbirth, as it normally occurs is not a miracle. Although it is amazing and inexplicable, it's not a miracle. Now, Jesus' childbirth was a miracle. He was born of a virgin. But, say, Samuel's birth, in answer to Hannah's prayer, was answered prayer. It was inexplicable. It was amazing. It was wonderful. It was a gift of God. But it wasn't a miracle using the Bible's definition of miracles. Now, another thing to say about miracles before we get into the reason for miracles is we should talk about the terminology the Bible uses for miracles. It uses four words in particular that all four can be found in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Here's what that says. 
How shall we how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Four words there for miracles. Uh, I'll get to the first one last. I'm going to save signs for the last. So you have um, wonders, which is the amazement you feel when you witness miracles, the awe and the astonishment. And then you have the term miracles from dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite, which means power. So you could just say acts of power, but the English translation I'm using here uses that as miracles. It's not the most frequent uh, terminology for miracles in the Bible at all. Gifts of the Holy Spirit is here. Uh, it's also found a lot in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, used by Paul as he says the Holy Spirit distributes these miraculous gifts as he sees fit. Some people received them. Uh, people didn't all receive the same miraculous gift, and some people didn't receive a miraculous gift at all. And then the fourth term is signs, and this is the predominant term for miracle in the New Testament. Miracle doesn't come anywhere close to as many times as signs is used. And I think there's a, a reason for that. A sign communicates something. A sign is meant to symbolize or represent a truth, an idea, a concept, or a person. And miracles have a purpose. There is a reason for miracles. And so we're going to talk about that as we go forward. Sign indicates that we're on the right track as if we're looking for the reason for miracles. There are three in particular I want to share with you. And so um, let's, let's get right into them. Uh, starting, first of all, with identifying the Son of God. That's, that's the first reason. To identify Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one the world had been waiting for all along, the answer to all the prophecies before. If somebody comes into a room, comes into a church and says, I am the chosen one, I'm the Messiah, everybody would think he was crazy. But if he's doing that while he's levitating in the air, well, then they might lend more credence to what he's saying. And that's the situation here. When Jesus came on the scene claiming to be God's son, there was a reason why that was very controversial. I mean, you're saying that you are the person all of history has been waiting for. That's a bold claim. Everything, that means you're king of king, kings and lord of lords. That means everybody must worship you, that all the world is about you, that you created the world. You have to back that up with something, and miracles backed up Jesus' claims. He raised people from the dead, he healed the sick, he healed lepers and people who had been blind from birth and people who couldn't speak and couldn't hear. He uh, cast out demons, walked on water, stopped storms on seas. He did all kinds of things to back up his claim that he was the Son of God. So when Nicodemus came to him in John 3, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Um, if you're watching really carefully, Jesus' Jesus's miracles were reflecting what he 
tried to tell the Pharisees in John 5:17 when he said, My father is working until now, and I am working. Whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. His miracles communicated that he did what his father in heaven did, and he did it as powerfully as the father did. And C.S. Lewis brought this out really well in an essay he wrote entitled Miracles. Uh, He says, There is an activity of God displayed throughout creation, a wholesale activity, let us say, which man refused to recognize. The miracles done by God incarnate, living as a man in Palestine, performed the very same things as this wholesale activity, but at a different speed and on on a smaller scale. One of their chief purposes is that men, having seen a thing done by personal power on the small scale, may recognize when they see the same thing done on the large scale that the power behind it is the very same person who lived among us 2,000 years ago. So here's what he means by that. Every day, God provides wonders according to his natural laws, which is the way we refer to his providence, natural laws. It's the way he chooses to operate normally in the world. Uh, He gives us bread on our tables. He gives us food. He gives us daily provisions. And, um, you know, we take them for granted and we don't wonder at them anymore. But if you think about it, it's a really amazing thing that you can take a dry seed from a plant that died a long time ago, put it in dirt, let the rain and the sun work on it, and it grows into another plant that yields many, many other plants like it and food for us to eat. That's an amazing thing. We take it for granted because it happens every day, but that's God's activity that we witness every day. Um, R.C. Trench in his book on miracles said, these daily provisions are not more wonderful. Or He said, miracles are like these daily provisions, not more wonderful, just less frequent. They don't happen as often, but they're not any more amazing than the natural laws, as we call them, that we take for granted. So when Jesus changed water to wine, for example, he did something on that occasion that God does every day. He just sped up the process. You uh, have a vineyard. It gets enough rain, water, soil, uh, sun. It's going to grow grapes. The grapes can ferment into wine, and you have a beverage. Jesus did that at the wedding feast in a matter of moments. And as C.S. Lewis put it, when he did that, The mask was off, and Christ was identifying himself as the Messiah by doing God's activity before everybody's very eyes. So by doing those kinds of things, by feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, speeding up the natural processes, doing God's work right before the eyes of people, he's identifying himself and backing up his claims so that his teaching would be believed. If he wasn't doing that, his teaching wouldn't be believed. So that's the first purpose or reason for miracles, identifying the Son of God. Here's the second one, revealing the Word of God. How do we know what God wants us to know? We have to get that by a miracle. There's no way that we can discover it on our own or conjure it up in our imaginations. Let's say that we did. How would we know for sure if we had really come up with God's truths? So those come to us by inspiration. That's the name for it. And inspiration literally means 
God breathed. It's the idea that God breathed the word into prophets and apostles who wrote it down for us to understand. And um, the apostles preached that and brought that out to men. That language, by the way, is used in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 of all Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God or given by inspiration. And so that's the second reason or purpose for miracles is to reveal the Word of God. The final reason I want to go over with you is confirming the Word of God. Once it's revealed, it has to be confirmed. So these men that receive it, they know that they got it by a miracle, but how do they convince the world that what they are saying came miraculously? And that's where confirmation comes into play. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 talked about this. We read this a moment ago when it says, Our great salvation was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So that miracle of revelation that happened, you know, behind closed doors was brought out into the open through confirmation. At the end of the book of Mark, the confirmation of miraculous signs is talked about where Jesus sends his disciples out to preach and he says, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Uh, They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So you have to have some confirmation of a message, even if you received it miraculously. How are the crowds to know that what you're preaching is... Excuse me. How are they supposed to know that what you're preaching is, in fact, the truth? Now, Jesus and his disciples were very careful not to use miracles for reasons other than those three things I just outlined for you. For example, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the devil came to him. Jesus had been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Obviously, he was extremely hungry. He was famished. And the first temptation was, command these stones that they be made into bread. And Jesus refused to do it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Why did he refuse refuse to do it? He could have done it. Why did he refuse? He refused because he wasn't going to be identifying himself as the Son of God, revealing the Word of God, or confirming the Word of God in doing that thing. It would have been an abuse of miraculous power. He would have caved to the temptation to take a shortcut to glory and avoid the cross and just become a guy who can make bread out of stone, a magician of some kind, the best kind of magician maybe, but not the Son of God. He refused to do it. Uh, The disciples were the same. Paul left a lot of co-workers behind sick. You can read about one called Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. Epaphroditus was a very important person to the church at Philippi, and he nearly died from some illness. And Paul talks about how he was praying for Epaphroditus, and the church was praying for Epaphroditus, and everybody was worried sick. And Paul is a man who has proven his ability to heal the sick in times past. Why didn't he heal Epaphroditus? 
And he doesn't explain it. He just takes for granted that we understand that that wasn't going to serve the reason for miracles. It wasn't going to reveal anything or confirm anything in a case where that was needed. He wasn't going to use miracles for selfish purposes. He left another co-worker named Trophimus sick in uh, Miletus or someplace like that. Same situation there. And Paul himself was afflicted by a thorn in the flesh. You can read about how it burdened him. It was some physical ailment. We don't know what it was. But you can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 7. He calls it a messenger of Satan to buffet him and to abuse him. And he prayed to the Lord to remove it, and the Lord refused to remove it. Because spiritually speaking, Paul was better off with it than without it. In the weakness, he became strong. So miracles aren't just to heal the sick. That's not the the reason in itself for them. Or to speak languages never studied before, or to automatically get knowledge into one's head. Miracles are simply for those three things. If there's another reason for them, I haven't thought of it yet. In my studies, they identify the Son of God, they reveal the Word of God, and confirm the Word of God. Those three things. Now that leads us to an obvious question, and one I'm sure everybody who's still listening at this point is asking, and that is, does God use miracles today? Now the reason this chapter on miracles finds its way into my book on faith is that I take the the position that God puts faith into people's hearts in two ways. First of all, he started with miracles. And, you know, you can see, you can connect the dots on that from what I argued a while ago. Identifying the Son of God, revealing the Word of God, confirming the Word of God, all of that is going to build faith. But at a certain point, when the written word was completed, the New Testament took over in its written form, and miracles passed away. And now, God puts faith in people's hearts through the preaching of the Word of God, or the study of the Word of God, which is what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Um, people say, well, where do you get that idea? I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says miracles will cease. Well, there are a couple of important passages or arguments to look at along that line. And there are more than that, but the two obvious ones are the ones I'm going to go over really quickly here at the end of this episode. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8-10. through 10. This is at the end of that famous passage on love that you hear in so many weddings Love is kind, love is patient, love never ends. And that is about love, and it's certainly the most important passage on love that you can find in the Bible in terms of defining what agape love is. But you need to remember it's in the midst of a long discussion of spiritual gifts or miracles that begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and goes all the way to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14. There is a problem in the church at Corinth. The early Christians are divided over spiritual gifts. Some have become puffed up with pride because they have a gift that is desired by others. Others are feeling inferior because they have a 
less regarded gift or maybe no spiritual gift at all. They only have a natural gift. And Paul says, look, this isn't the point. This isn't all headed towards the ultimate goal of spiritual gifts. In fact, you need to earnestly desire gifts like faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And he points out in this discussion that spiritual gifts are never meant to be a permanent fixture in the church, that they have a purpose, and we've talked about the purpose, and after they have served their purpose, they will fade away. And I'm going to read a portion of that argument from 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. He says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he's using some terminology here that indicates, first of all, that there will come a time when miraculous power will pass away, when it will cease, when it will go away. It's temporary. It's never meant to be a permanent fixture in the church. Now, I want you to notice that two of the miracles he mentions there are knowledge and prophecy. And they are said to manifest themselves in part and are contrasted with what he calls the perfect. In other words, whatever they do, knowledge and prophecy, they don't do it completely. They're partial. Um, Miracles like knowledge and prophecy in the early church revealed the Word of God, but they did it in a particular place at a particular time. So they didn't do it fully. They couldn't. Oral lectures just can't fully give you all the information. And if they can give the audience in front of them all the information, that doesn't help the rest of the world. So there's only a partial way that the miracles could communicate truth. So what does he mean by the perfect that's going to take the place of the partial? Well, one interpretation that I've heard is that this has to do with the second coming of Christ. And the reason people say that is, if they can make that case, then they can have modern-day miracles, because Paul is saying that when the perfect comes, that's when the spiritual gifts will pass away. So, one of my questions is, is that really logically what we think, that all the wonders will cease when the greatest wonder of all occurs, the second coming of Christ and the resurrection? That's the first question. The second question is, Why does he say the gifts of faith, hope, and love will abide past the miraculous age if the miraculous age lasts until the second coming? See if you can follow me here. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. But when we see the promises of God in the second coming, and we're in heaven... We see them. Faith is realized, and at least faith in its current form is no longer needed. It passes away. Same with hope. In Romans 8, 23 and 24, Paul asks, Who hopes for what he sees? So whenever you see what you've hoped for, the hope is realized, it's fulfilled, it's no longer there. So we don't expect to have faith and hope in the second coming, and yet people are saying, 
well, Paul's arguments just don't add up. If you say the the perfect is the second coming, then you've got it where miracles last outlast faith and hope. And that's not what he says. He says miracles will cease, but faith, hope, and love will abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. I can imagine love in the afterlife, but not faith in its current form or hope in its current form, using the biblical terminology. So maybe you can follow that. So what does he mean by perfect if he's not talking about the second coming? Well, you must keep in mind that in the Bible, the word perfect more often means complete than faultless. We usually use it, you know, to talk about somebody who has no faults, but usually it means complete. So that means whatever came through miracles in part would have come would come in completed form once the miracles ceased. And we've already seen miracles revealed the word of God in part. So that must mean that Paul is talking about the completion of the word of God. When the word of God was completed, there's no more need for miracles to reveal and confirm it. Their, pur- their purpose finished, and so they passed away. So that's pretty clear once you define the terms, particularly the term perfect from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's one argument. That's one thing. But there's more than that. If that's not enough for you, think about the way that miracles were imparted from person to person. There were basically two ways that a person received miraculous power. The first was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know there are a lot of religious groups that think the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs in every case of conversion. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that there were two cases of Holy Spirit baptism, maybe three in the case of Saul of Tarsus, but the two confirmed ones that are recorded are in Acts chapter 2 with the apostles who began speaking in tongues right afterwards, and Acts chapter 10 with the household of Cornelius. Why do you say those were the only two? How, why can't we assume that this happened over and over and over again? Because when Peter reported on what happened at the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 11, he says in verse 15, trying to convince the, the disciples of Jerusalem that this happened, he said the Spirit came on them just as, it, as he had come upon us in the beginning. Why did Peter have to go all the way back to the beginning of the church for another example of Holy Spirit baptism if it happened every day whenever somebody was converted to Jesus Christ? So that way of receiving miraculous gifts was done, you know, by the time it was used at the household of Cornelius just to show that God, the gospel was for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So the other way, The other way was the laying on of the apostles' hands. Now, you recall Jesus handpicked 12 apostles. Judas committed suicide. He was replaced by Matthias, and then the apostle Paul was named as one untimely born, to use his term in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. So, whenever people receive spiritual gifts... They had to receive them through the laying on of an apostle's hands, one of 12 or maybe 13 men in existence on the earth at that time. Now, if that seems a little far-fetched to you, read Acts chapter 8, especially the account of Philip's trip to Samaria. He goes to Samaria, converts a number of people, including a sorcerer, and he calls Peter and John down from Jerusalem 
to lay their hands on the new converts so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, receive the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. And he, they, they come down and do that. And as they're doing that, the sorcerer, whose name was Simon, was so impressed by that, he offered Peter money so that he could have not just the regular spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy and things like that, but so that he could have the apostolic power that belonged only to the apostles to lay hands on people and impart spiritual gifts. And Peter got really angry and refused, and he said, May your money perish with you, and told him to repent and to pray. And that's not the only case. Uh, Paul encounters disciples in Acts 19 and asks them if they had received the Holy Spirit. And uh, he has to instruct them further, and later he lays his hands on them, and they begin uh, receiving spiritual gifts. Paul writes to the church at Rome, whom he had never visited, in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, that he'd like to visit them so that he could impart some spiritual gift to them. So this is pretty clear, that the only way people received miraculous gifts after those two baptisms of the Holy Spirit was through the laying on of the apostles' hands, which means either miraculous gifts have ceased or there are some very old apostles on earth today. Those are just a couple of arguments. There are other things that could be made, but those wrap it up for me that the Word of God has come in and now is the source of faith for believers instead of miracles. And some people really have a hard time with that because I I think for a few reasons. Maybe because they've had an inexplicable experience in their life that they believe is properly called a miracle. I'm not saying that experience didn't happen. I'm just saying miracle's probably not the best word for it, if you want to use biblical terminology. Another thing is they, they fear that maybe I'm arguing that God doesn't answer prayer. That's not at all what I am saying. Or they might think that I'm saying God is not active in everyday events, or he can't interfere into history and do what he pleases. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that when he does, he can do it within natural law. Why would God make natural law if he's going to break it all the time? There's a reason why he ordered the universe the way that he did. It's the way he prefers to to run the world. He is active every day. As I said, every time he brings a plant to life through a dead seed, He's resurrecting life there, and that's something amazing that we take for granted. Every time it rains, God is active in that. Every every natural thing that happens has God's hand in it. He, he sustains the universe. And so I'm not saying God is not amazing or powerful or anything like that. I'm just saying he doesn't break through the natural and bring the supernatural in because if he did that on a regular basis life would be very difficult, actually. And uh, we would have all kinds of questions. If miracles were just supposed to be commonplace, why do so many children die in hospitals? And why do so many innocent sick people get hurt? And why do so many people pray and pray and pray for deliverance and receive nothing? Uh, That would be a hard question to answer in the context of commonplace miraculous gifts. So those are some things to to consider. And like I said, if there are some things I left open that you want to talk about, I welcome your input. I'd love to get a question to address on the podcast. 
I appreciate everybody's uh, support and feedback. I've been getting a lot of good feedback about the podcast, and I enjoy doing it. It's great to know that people are listening. Uh, don't forget uh, about the book, Christian Faith. Tell other people about it. Uh, it's out there. I, I enjoy doing it. I'm not trying to make any money, really. You don't make money writing books unless you're somebody that's not me. So uh, I just enjoy doing it and want to get the word out about it. Spread the word and help me let people know about it. And uh, keep listening. Join us next time on Wide Margins.